What a great preparation for this festival week. And I'm excited about this week. Always thrilling to be worshiping in these, uh, these two Sundays and all the time that's in between them. Good Friday service coming up Friday night, as Todd said. It's going to be a great, great time. We are, of course, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ as these wonderful hymns and this collection of timeless uh, praise hymns uh, indicated as we were singing them. This is all about Christ, and we love that. Years ago, when I was uh, at another ministry and, and on staff, we would be, um, even as younger staff guys, we'd be assigned to what was called the, um, the POD program, the Pastor of the Day Program and that was basically that you were you were the guy for the day to whom they would filter all their calls they would they would send the calls to you that would randomly come into the church people had questions about the Bible or counseling issues things like that so it was pretty challenging and and uh, always energetic and the variety was uh, it kept you busy and hopping for the day and um, and I got this call one time. Uh, and, you know, you're always nervous when you get a call because you're like, I'm kind of young. I'm not really sure if I'm going to really know the answer. And what if I, you know, misrepresent the truth? or what? So you're always concerned about those things. And uh, so you're on edge a little bit. I got this call from this person who began to ask uh, questions, but I couldn't quite figure out what the content was. And so I began to poke around, try to figure out what the deal was. And it became apparent shortly into the phone call, this person didn't know the Lord. And, and while I wasn't really sure what they were after, it was clear that they, they weren't um, asking a question or wanting to talk about their walk with Christ. They were clearly an unbeliever. And so I just thought, well, I'll just share the gospel with them. And so I began to, uh, to share the gospel with them. And instead of, you know, beating around the bush uh, like I normally do, uh, <laughs> I, I actually went right for the jugular. I went right for the doctrine of the atonement. I started to talk about... The blood of Jesus Christ shed for sinners on the cross. And the moment I talked about the atonement, this person said, I am Jesus. I am the Christ. And, you know, I had a chill. But it was one of those moments, even as a young man, where I thought, no, you know, I, I know the answer to this. And so I said, no, you're not. You're not the Christ. You know how I know? You don't have the divine authentication. You're not the Christ because the Christ was the servant fashioned by God and sent to earth to die for his people. And all along the way, there were these authentications, these divine affirmations of the Christ, the true Messiah. And it reminded me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees when he was facing off with the Jewish leaders and he starts to talk to the disciples about the coming judgment. Matthew's gospel records in chapter 24 and 25 these great uh, discourses on the coming judgment. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, many are going to come and claim to be the Christ. They're going to come in my name, he said in Matthew 24, 4 and 5. And I don't want anyone to mislead you because they're going to come in my name and they're going to say, I am the Christ. And he said they're going to mislead many. Later in that chapter, uh, verses 24 and 25, or 23 and 24 rather, he said, look, there's going to come a day when people are going to say, hey, the, whole, the Christ is over here. Come see him. And he says, don't go. And they're going to say, oh, Jesus is over here. The true Messiah is over here. Don't go. Don't go. 
I've told you how he's going to come back and it's going to be obvious that he's going to come in judgment. And if you're here as part of the tribulation, of course, I believe that we'll be gone as a church. Those who are caught away in the catching away of the church. But those who are saved during the tribulation period, when these judgments happen, Jesus said, if you see the beginning of that, you're going to see the coming of Christ so fast it'll make your head spin. It'll be before the leaves turn fully green on the plant. You're going to see the starting of the turning and the full green leaf come in. It's going to be that fast. He's coming. Don't be misled. And God is going to permit, at that time in the judgment, He's going to permit Satan to empower certain false messiahs with such signs and wonders that if it were possible, Jesus said, they could even deceive the elect. Wow. False messiahs, He said, they go out all the time. I read this week of a guy that lives on a compound with his family and says he's the Messiah. No, he's not. He's not the Messiah. They are all the time going out into the world. God authenticated his anointed one. And not just planning to make his second coming obvious, but his... First coming was equally authenticated. And so let's look in our Bibles at Luke chapter 3 at this just wonderful section that we're heading into at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's absolutely amazing that Jesus is authenticated as the Son of God and he is, um, he is marked or his ministry is marked in its beginning by some astounding events. Absolutely remarkable ways that you know He is the Son of God, the Chosen One, the Servant. He's the one prepared by the Father. This one, the one Luke talks about here, the one who was authenticated in the way that He was authenticated here. And by the way, the Son of God becomes the theme from 321 to 413. So that section really is about the Son of God. You know, we have a fascination in this culture with Jesus movies, even the recent movie Son of God. It's not a... The Jesus in all these movies, uh, they, they, uh, they play fast and loose with the biblical narrative. They make up stuff on the fly. They're imaginative and creative. The, the guy playing Jesus, the character in the movies, never comes out really like the Jesus of the Bible. He comes out like either a, a Gandhi-like character who sheer human compassion rises up to help other people uh, stop suffering in life. Or he comes off as just a, a good human, so good that he's just a philanthropist, humanitarian, uh, wanting to change people's earthly existence. No, they're missing the point. In fact, all these movies miss the point. What is the point? He is the Son of God, chosen and fashioned by the Father as a servant the Messiah who will rescue sinners. All the movies miss that point. They don't go into the discussion of the atonement. Why? Because it's the one thing Satan wants to blind people's minds to, is the atoning work of Christ. It's the one thing John the Baptist called people to. Repent. Why? Because you need atonement. It's the one thing that on the phone caused a violent reaction out of this strange individual on the other end of the phone, this deceived false Messiah. The moment I started mentioning the atonement, there was this immediate and vile claim 
on the other end. Well, the Son of God is in view here, and He is the beloved Son of God. In just two verses describing these events, Luke gives us the divine authentication. And then next time, after next week, when we resume this text, you notice the genealogy. That's a very interesting section. You say, well, I I just wish the Bible didn't have all those endless lists. Listen, go to the end of the list for a moment. Verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. What is that? Luke is describing Jesus' identification with humanity all the way back to the first created being, Adam himself. Why? Because Jesus is the second Adam. And so the son of God, the son of Adam is going to be highlighted in the genealogy. Why? To identify him with humanity. So you have the divine authentication, you have the human identification, and then in chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, that'll be in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out how Jesus is vindicated spiritually. We're going to see his spiritual vindication because the furious powers of hell come against him and he wins, he succeeds, he obeys, he is the servant of God. He is truly the Son from heaven. But let's just look at this first one in these two verses, the divine authentication. And there are three astounding events that occur, which Luke records, amazingly, in just two verses. Three astounding events that authenticate the beloved Son of God as the servant, the Messiah, at the beginning of his ministry. Notice verse 21, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying... Heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, and a voice came out of heaven, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now let's just sort of see if in the remaining time we can just watch the way that he is authenticated You can know if someone claims to be the Christ or the Messiah if they don't fit this passage, if they don't fit what the Bible says about the coming one, they're not the Messiah in His second coming. They're not arriving as Jesus because there's only one Messiah and unmistakably it is recorded here how He is authenticated. Three astounding events. The first of which is His association with the guilty. His association with the guilty. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Now the first thing you notice here compared to the other Gospels is the complete lack of detail regarding his baptism. John, when he's talking to his disciples in John 1, will look back at the previous days when Jesus was baptized. Matthew and Mark include a little more detail about the actual baptism itself. But Luke passes over it, even in the structure of the language here. His Greek wording just about passes over the whole event itself because his central focus is going to be to move us toward the second and third astounding events. But though his record of the baptism is only a brief statement, remember what he's already said about the purpose of John's baptism. Look back at verse 16 of chapter 3. Remember what he said is, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who's mightier than I. I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. 
and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Luke's record of the baptism is only a brief statement or the baptism of Jesus. It's only brief, but the purpose of Jesus' baptism will begin to come to light as he is the one that is connected with the Holy Spirit, which therefore then connects him to the power to regenerate. The power to regenerate. And we'll see that in a moment. So John's purpose is not to give us the details of the baptism, but to move quickly to the visual and audible events. Nonetheless, he does tell us Jesus was baptized. And that's critical. If he'd have left that out, it might have made his gospel lack credibility. It might have made these events that he describes in verse uh, 22 lacking in credibility. You say, why? Because the baptism of Jesus identifies him with the guilty. It identifies him with the guilty. Notice when all the people were baptized. That there's no way to know if Jesus got in line and just sort of went down to the water in a long line of people. There's no way to know whether this was after everyone else John was baptizing had completely finished Clearly, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then he was baptizing in the same region after he was baptized, so essentially their ministries overlap a bit. But clearly, John is going to fade off the scene, so it must be near the end of the time when John's going to be baptizing. Do you remember what happened? The other Gospels record it. Jesus comes in to be baptized, and John says, hey, 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 hey. I'm the forerunner. You should be baptizing me. And so Jesus then said, and it's recorded in Matthew 3.15, Jesus said, permit it, I want you to permit it at this time. Why? Because it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Now, several questions come to mind. Wait a minute, Jesus was already righteous. If Jesus is already righteous, then he didn't need to be baptized. Well, we we know that. We understand that. He didn't have to be baptized in the sense that he was somehow claiming that he wanted to repent. John's baptism was to indicate that a sinner was truly penitent and wanted forgiveness. They were coming to John, as we saw, and they were saying, I want to repent of my old life, my self-worship, and I want God's forgiveness and his pardon. That was John's baptism. It was symbolic of a heart that was prepared to receive a Messiah, a rescuer, a savior. But Jesus was already righteous, so he was not coming to declare his repentance. He was not coming to say, I want forgiveness. He needed no such forgiveness. So then how was Jesus fulfilling the righteousness of God by being baptized? Listen, his baptism accomplishes the same purpose as the Spirit's visible anointing and the Father's audible confirmation. The Spirit's visible anointing with the Spirit and the audible confirmation He's about to give has the same purpose as Jesus' baptism, namely, that He is beginning His ministry as Messiah. So His baptism also serves the same purpose of connecting Him or identifying Him as the Messiah. Now, we know that's true because in the Old Testament, and particularly Isaiah, right? Isaiah 53, all the Jews standing around would have known Isaiah 53. It says in Isaiah 53 that he is the one who bears our sin. The one true mediator who would bridge the unbridgeable chasm between a holy God and sinful men. He's the one. 
He is the mediator, the go-between. He's the sin-bearer. And 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul picks up that terminology and says, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, and then what does he say? Christ Jesus, the Messiah Jesus. So the messianic idea is wrapped up in this act of baptism. It is Jesus not saying, I want forgiveness, not saying, I repent, but he's affirming his role as a mediator by identifying with the very people he is going to forgive. He's identifying with their guilt. He gets in the water to say, I will bear your sins. You're saying you want forgiveness? I'm the one who can give it to you. So I'm identifying with your guilt. I'm going to bear the load. The beginning of my messianic ministry is at least loudly saying this. I am the load bearer. You want pardon? I alone can pardon. You want to repent of your sins? I can make that repentance efficacious, effective. I can make it worth something. That's his point. He got in the water to identify with the guilty. He's declaring in his baptism that he's willing to immerse himself in our guilt. That's what the Messiah came to do. To serve God by taking on the load of guilt from someone else. So Luke doesn't have to provide details here. He mentions it because it is Jesus' association with him, of himself with the burden of sin. That's what the Messiah did. All through the Old Testament, he associated himself with the guilt. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's who he was. That's who he came to be. There's something else happening in Jesus' baptism that's very, very important as well. John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist is baptizing people. And he's got all these disciples and they're following him. Now, John the Baptist has got to transfer loyalties from himself to Jesus. And so what does Jesus do? I mean, this is just the care of God. Jesus comes into the water and is baptized by John. Why? Because if he hadn't been baptized, then the people that had been baptized by John the Baptist, who was seen as the prophet, who would prepare the way for the Messiah, there'd be no connection between Jesus and John. People would say, I'm following John. And some did later on. They even said, hey, Jesus is over there baptizing. Uh, man, should we be bothered by another guy getting in on our ministry, on your prophetic ministry? And John said, he must increase and I must decrease. Go follow him. So John Gospel records. You follow that guy. Don't follow me. Now, if they had never seen Jesus baptized by John, you know what they would have said? Well, he's not been a part of your ministry. He's not identified with your ministry. So Jesus gets baptized to affirm and validate John's forerunner role, his role as the one who prepared the way. And the two ministries then connect. So Jesus' baptism just sort of upholds and once for all time validates John as the one who prepared the way. And now people can transfer their loyalties from the prophet to the Messiah himself. And so Luke says he was baptized. It is the first astounding event at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He actually identified with the guilty. You know, again, today's portrayals and, and historical portrayals of the person of Jesus miss this whole point. They always want to make Jesus identify with human suffering, with physical suffering. Look, lots of people physically suffered in Jesus' day. 
movies about his physical suffering, as bad as it was and as horrific as, as it would be to watch in its realistic sense right there in front of you, that wasn't the issue. Yes, he was to suffer because death is a part of that and human suffering is a part of that and sin has brought humans to a point of poverty and suffering, etc. But the world wants it to be only about earthly existence. And it's never just about earthly existence. In fact, that is far in the backdrop. What is at stake here is his identification with your eternal guilt. And so he was baptized so there'd be no doubt why he came to be the sin bearer. And then the second two events are just so astounding. The first is that he is authenticated by association with the guilty. The second divine authentication is that he is anointed by the Spirit of God. And this is absolutely remarkable. Notice, and while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Now, this is, uh, this is remarkable the way Luke records it because Luke includes a detail that the other gospel writers don't include. It says that Jesus came out of the water praying. I don't want to gloss over that. Why is Jesus praying here? Well, we don't know what he's praying because the gospel writer doesn't tell us what he's praying, doesn't mention it. None of the gospels do. And literally, in the original language, it just says, and praying. So some of your translations say, while he was praying. That's the idea. He comes out of the water praying, and then the, the heavens open. But Luke mentions it here, not only because it happened and it was a fact, but because it demonstrates that as the Messiah, Jesus is connected with the concept of the servant mentioned in Isaiah 42. You say, well, where does Isaiah 42 come in? Notice the quote of God the Father, the audible authentication at the end of verse 22. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. That is God repeating something that he'd said to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42. You remember verse 1? This is my son or my chosen servant in whom my soul delights. You know what God the Father is doing here? He is pulling in the concept that Jesus is a servant. He's the one who was fashioned to serve the Father's interests. That was 700 years before this moment. And God just pulls it this direction and gives an audible, and we'll explore that in just a moment in our remaining time. But here Luke records that Jesus came out praying. Why? He is serving his Father. Look, he's, he's about to begin the ministry of rescue. He's about to be hated. He's about to head toward his death. He's about to begin a public ministry which will produce such hostility by the religious system that he will go to his death for sinners. No one would want to do that unless he were serving greater interests the interests of the Father, the sovereign plan to save. And so this gesture, this praying as Jesus comes out of the water, Luke mentions it because that is Luke's joy and passion. Here is the servant praying. And as he's praying, as he's expressing explicit faith and trust in his Father, divine revelation happens. Divine revelation and miraculous spirit empowerment. 
divine revelation and miraculous spirit empowerment. Notice, heaven was open. By the way, that, that is not common, even in the Old Testament. Divine revelation in some visible, miraculous attachment between heaven and earth, that is not common. If you've been with us on Sunday nights, you've been, you've been studying with us the, the transfer of Isaac's estate to Jacob's estate, and you remember what happened. He was sleeping, and he has a vision given to him by God of this ladder, and the ladder touches earth and touches heaven. And on the ladder, up and down, angels are, are flying up and down that thing. What is that signifying to Jacob? I'm with you. I have given you all the divine resources directly from heaven to protect you and stay with you and keep you under the covenant. I am faithful to you. I will guide and lead you. I will give you my truth and revelation. And you have direct access to God. My angels are ministers on my behalf to you. And you have any, any access to God you want. Man, that is a, an amazing vision. But it's rare. And here you have this same sort of opening in a miraculous way. And this doesn't happen after this event till, till you see uh, heaven opening at his ascension. Luke twenty four fifty one and, and Acts chapter 1. The, the, Jesus is lifted up into heaven in front of them. Then you see Stephen martyred in Acts chapter 7 and he sees the heavens opened and he sees the resources, the angelic beings going up and down into heaven and, and around God's throne. He sees that vision. Heaven was open then. Acts chapter 9, Paul is on the road to Damascus and in order uh, to, to persecute Christians and God knocks him off the animal, he gets saved and this voice comes out of heaven. There's revelation directly from heaven. And then you see heaven open in the apocalypse when John writes of the coming judgment. Revelation 4.1, in his vision, heaven opens and revelation happens. And then you don't see it again till Revelation 19, verse 11, in the second coming of Christ. Heaven opens and Christ comes with his people. So this is direct activity from heaven and it's an indication that God is about to intervene in some powerful, miraculous way and it is extraordinary, special revelation that's about to take place. And notice what happens when heaven opens, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And this is really interesting. In bodily form as a dove. If you've ever wondered why a dove, you're not alone. All throughout history, people have wondered, why a dove? There have been entire theological camps that have said, well, this probably is associated with Noah. Yeah, there's a dove. Noah sent the dove out and he found land. He found life. That's what this is. This is life. It's, it's a possibility. The text doesn't say. At least not here. Others have sort of connected it to a, a rabbinic tradition about 100, 100 A.D. that started to formulate that connected this with Genesis. Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God was sort of hovering over the earth and the term can sometimes be translated sort of hovering and moving or shaking or shuddering or brooding as in some of the, ancient tra the other translations. And they say, that's what this is. This is, the, this is the Spirit of God coming in His creative power. It's... Not likely, but it's possible. Still others have thought it just means Jesus is gentle. Doves are gentle. Jesus is gentle. 
This is a description of the gentleness of the Messiah. He certainly is gentle where he needs to be gentle and harsh where he needs to be harsh. Perfectly. But that's a stretch. The the dove itself is um, given a symbolic interpretation by Jesus. When he's talking to the disciples and he's about to send them out into the world with the gospel and there's going to be hostility. Remember in Matthew 10, verse 16, he says, I want you to be wise as serpents and what? I had like 16 translations right there that you just said. (laughs) Innocent. Pure. I mean, the word literally means without uh, stain. You know, the, the serpent, the symbology of the serpent was he, he's on the ground, he's in the stain, he's getting stained, he's, he's all about the things that are earthy. Whereas the dove was typically white and the image was pure and, and you know, just sort of floated around, didn't get involved in all the grunge. And Jesus actually uses that symbolism and says, I want you to be innocent, pure. Pure like the, the, the imagery of a dove. Like that. So why a dove? Well, it is clear from the text that Jesus is anointed for his task. So clearly we know that no one would have been able to authenticate that he, include, that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit if there hadn't been some visible authentication. So there had to be some visual manifestation of the event. We know that because the, the, the Pharisees made this a real point of argument with him, a point of hostility. When later they will say, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 11, 14 to 23, you remember later they say, oh, I know, you do your work by a different spirit. You don't do it by the Spirit of God. You're not the anointed Messiah. You do it by Satan himself. And Jesus says, you know, if that were true, the kingdom divided against itself won't stand. Well, all, all they would have said is, yeah, you claim to be anointed by the Holy Spirit, but there's absolutely no evidence of that. Anybody can claim that. Well, the answer would be this. No, there are people that saw it. They saw a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. Now, look at John chapter one for a moment. This is where it gets really rich in John's recollection of what happened when he was there. John chapter 1, verse 29, here it is. He's referring back to the event. John 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he's talking to his disciples and he said, This is he, this one, this one coming, is he on behalf of whom I said, Hey, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So he refers to Jesus as the eternal one, which clearly is a reference to his messianic ministry. He existed before he became the God man. He's eternal. And then verse 31, I didn't recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I've seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven. And look at this. He remained upon him. And I didn't recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one. Look at this, who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen it and have testified that this is the Son of God. So you have the Son of God attached to the Messianic title, attached to this event, attached to the Spirit of God and the visible manifestation of the Spirit of God the Spirit as a dove, and he remained on him. 
He remained on him. So this is clear revelation from heaven. It came out of heaven as Jesus was praying. And there is this visible manifestation. And of course, you know, I mean, how would anyone know whether the event here was was the heavenly spirit of God in some bodily form or just some stupid bird on an errant flight path? Right? Because people could say, oh, look at that. That was weird. Did you see that? Jesus was baptized. Some bird came and landed on him and then flew away. That didn't happen. I was telling the first service that years ago, I was in Israel and uh, we were at the garden tomb on Sunday having communion. It was just a tremendously surreal and and very tender time. And um, I was asked to sing. And so the tomb was over here and the pulpit was here and everybody was you know, about ready to take communion. And I was singing this medley of hymns and it was caught on video. These two or three turtle doves came flying around my head and then flew off, you know, like that. (laughs) And, you know, cue the doves, you know, I mean, it was, it was that, it was timed that perfectly. And yet it was just one of those strange providences. People could have said, ah, it's just a bird. No. Not only did it come from heaven, not only did it come at Jesus' baptism where he's identifying with guilty sinners and connecting himself to John the Baptist, but he remained on him as a display of the permanence, the display of the permanent superintendence of God with his presence on the God-man, the anointed one, Jesus Christ. That is precisely, by the way, what Jesus uses as his very first text and sermon. Notice in the next chapter, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, there he was in the synagogue and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, present tense, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. These are all messianic terms used by Isaiah the prophet as the Messiah's ministry to dead hearts begins. I want you to, I'm going to, I've come to preach the gospel to the to the spiritually poor, to proclaim release to the spiritually captive, to the spiritually blind, and to set free those who are spiritually oppressed. That was the whole point of the passage. And verse 20, he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Listen, at that moment... Some could have come and said, there was no visible manifestation of the Spirit of God falling on you. You're not in the Spirit. I know that God's going to empower the Messiah with His Spirit. He's going to put it on Him. But there's been no visible manifestation of that. Yes, there was. And He remained on Him. So Jesus, as Messiah has the Father's presence permanently. He is totally dependent upon the Spirit's power for His work, and He will baptize sinners in the Spirit's presence. That is to say, He alone, this Jesus, this one that was baptized then, is the only one that can regenerate dead hearts. There are no other Messiahs. There are no other prophets who can save. There are no other Redeemers. This is it. This one. That's divine authentication. And by the way, even when he came into town, 
the week before he died. The very commemoration we celebrate today. In Matthew's gospel, it says, you know what they cried out? Hosanna, son of David. That's a messianic title. Son of David was the title connected to son of man. And son of man was the title connected to the anointed one, the anointed king, the Christ, the Messiah. They got it. God was authenticating it right here at the beginning of his ministry. The beginning of his ministry. So he's associated with the guilty. He's anointed by the Spirit. And then this amazing third astounding event. He's adored by his Father. He's adored audibly by his Father. Notice a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved Son. And in you I am well pleased. This is... uh, God the Father, choosing to connect Isaiah 42, verse 1, the chosen servant in whom my soul delights, and Psalm 2, verse 7, Thou art my beloved Son, today I have begotten you. He connects those two passages, which are both about the Messiah, with Jesus' moment here of being baptized and anointed. God the Father adores His Son by pulling in the concepts from Messianic passages that Israel would have known and anticipated. In fact, look for just a moment at Hebrews 1, and then we'll finish back in Luke 3 with this last statement that God says. But notice Hebrews 1. This is where it all comes together about the Son. This is it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 God, after he spoke long ago to the patriarchs or the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and and Joseph, after he spoke long ago to those fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, that is, all the ways he spoke to his people, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, so This son, this one who is Messiah, introduced on this very day Luke's Luke's describing. He is the heir of all things, appointed to be so by God. Through whom he also made the world, so he's the creator of all things. Verse 3, he's the the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. So he's the radiance of God's glory. He's the glory of the Godhead. He's the essence of the Godhead. He's the nature of the Godhead. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. He sustains it all. So he is eternal. He is God of very God. This one who is called the Son. And when he had made purification of sin. So now his work on the cross is brought in by the writer of Hebrews. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's his authority. So here you have he's the revelation of the Father. He's the essence of the Father. He's the creator of the universe. He is the one who made purification for sins. And he is at the right hand of authority and majesty. So this is the Son. And notice, he is compared with angels. Verse 4, he has become much better than the angels as he has inherited more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels, verse 5, did he ever say, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. There it is. He pulls in Psalm 2, verse 7, and he pulls in Luke 3 at the baptism. Here it is. You are my beloved son. 
He doesn't mean today I've begotten you in the sense that, that Jesus wasn't a son in eternity. These are eternal titles as the rest of this section indicates. He is a son to his father eternally. But what, in what sense is he begotten today? What it means is you are the chosen servant whom I've designed to enter your ministry as the rescuer of sinners. I am inaugurating your ministry as the chosen one, the Christ. I've anointed you. I'm adoring you. I'm marking you out. I'm authenticating you. Verse 5, again, I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And when he again brings this firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So I want you to worship this one. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. What does that mean? The angels serve him. All the holy angels serve this one. This Messiah, this only son. But of the Son, by comparison, he says, Your throne, O God. This is of the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. There's his eternality again. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you'll roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you're the same. And your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever had said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the Son. This is all language applied to the Son. So God, on Jesus' day of baptism, connects the messianic titles of sonship with this one, this man, Jesus, the real servant. And by the way, this statement, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased, this is repeated again on the Mount of Transfiguration. It is spoken again when they're on the mountain, and it is recorded there that he says, I want you, in Matthew 17, 5, to listen to him. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Trust his word. Believe in him. Everything he says is me. And notice he says, in whom I'm well pleased. That is to say, Jesus was righteous through and through. And that's why he has to be tempted in 4, 1 to 13. Because it proves, it spiritually vindicates him as the one who can represent us. He can be a mediator because he fought the battle against temptation. Listen, that thought comes to my mind all the time when I'm fighting temptation. When we get to that section, it's going to be a thrill. Not just because Jesus is a model of how to fight temptation. He certainly is, and that text shows it. But the more important reality that that text is illustrating is he's the only mediator that could have. He's the only one that could have because he was willing, and he was holy, and he was righteous. And Satan threw the fury of hell at him, and he fought for us. He believed for us. He stayed faithful for us. Nobody can come along and say they're the Christ. Because they can't do that. They're sinners. Some guy in some compound with his family says he's the Messiah. Really, are you sinless? Have you perfectly and flawlessly, without a single breach of holiness, obeyed God? You're not the Messiah. You're not the Christ. Did the Father ever say of you, you are my beloved son, 
in whom I am well pleased. Everybody in the universe should listen to him. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? That's, me. That's the endorsement that everything you say is truth. Absolute truth. And this is the beauty and relief of this moment at his baptism for you and me. At the beginning of his, his ministry, he is already marked out and authenticated as the one. You believe in this Jesus? The one recorded in Luke? The one spoken of in the scriptures? You are saved. You believe in any other Messiah, in any other book, any other place? You're lost. This is the Messiah. In whom his father was well pleased and he, he was adored by his father audibly. That's remarkable. You know what's even more shocking? This one. In whom the father said, I'm well pleased. This is the same one. That the father took. And placed all of our sin on him and said, I'm not pleased with him. There's the shock. The same one marked out as Messiah. At that moment when Jesus is hearing the pleasure of his father in words like, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That same Jesus, the same God man, the same Messiah, rescuer of sinners for you and me, knew in his mind and heart in that moment that there would come a day not too long from now when the father would say, I'm not pleased with you because I've placed all of their sin on you and it pleases me to crush you for it. There it is. Until a movie about Jesus says that, they've missed the point. Don't go see it. It's nonsense. Because they're missing the issue. This is the Son of God in power, in righteousness. This is the Son of God authenticated by His Father. He identified with you and me. If you came today and you didn't think you were guilty... You know now, unless you're Him, you're guilty. <laughs> unless you're the Messiah, you need a Messiah. Desperately. And as we come in the next Friday night and next week to celebrate this payment for sin and this life power in His resurrection, let us not forget that at the beginning of His Messianic ministry, God marked him out. And you know what God's going to do? He's going to connect him to the human race in the genealogy. That's what Luke's going to do. That's why it says in that last verse, Adam, the son of God. What kind of son was he? He was the first created by God. This is the real son of God, the only one that could do it. And then he's going to test him so that we can see that he fought for us and he won the battle against the fury of hell. Is that not amazing? So now, when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, man, that's loaded. That's freighted richly, isn't it? We worship the Son of God. Bow with me. Father, this is so astounding to us, as it should be, as it was when it happened, as it has been to every believer who's ever read it with eyes of faith.
And it will be astounding in the judgment to all who have read it, known it, and have rejected it. Every knee will bow. Lord, if you've divinely appointed someone here today to hear this truth, and they they need a Messiah, but they they have rejected him thus far. Open their heart as you opened heaven. Quicken their deadness as you anointed Christ with your spirit. Regenerate their dead heart by the spirit of Christ through his work on the cross. We celebrate him as our Messiah, the only Messiah. We believe in no false Christs. We follow no one but This Jesus right here in Scripture, the one you authenticated, who identified with our guilt, who paid for our sin, who gave us power by His Spirit, and who was adored by you rightly. And we pray this would make a difference in our life this week. Give us your power over temptation that we might Grow in our faith. This might be an encouragement in our celebration. And then it would be a powerful testimony to lost people around us, lost family members whom we'll be visiting. Pray for your grace upon our efforts. In Jesus Christ's name, our Savior and the Son of God, we pray. Amen.